You're listening to the 10-Minute Medic, the podcast for busy paramedic students. I'm your host, Dr. Bill Young. In this part two of the two-part series on pathophysiology of shock, we take a look at the importance of the identification of your patient who is in compensated and may be progressing through to decompensated irreversible shock and why those signs and symptoms could be subtle but deadly for your patient. Because the body is made up primarily of water, it'll be helpful to understand how the fluids transition between cellular space and intracellular space and the effect that it has on the blood pressure. In addition to the movement of fluid through the vascular system, there's two other areas of fluid movement we need to take a look at. First is the movement of fluid by way of the capillary walls. Second method of movement of fluid in the body is that between fluid that is found in the interstitial cells and the movement across the cellular membrane into the cell itself. As the body is undergoing shock, it will progress through three phases or stages of shock that you'll need to be aware of. The first stage is that of compensated shock. This stage will be difficult to tell the difference between compensated shock and a simple reaction of the sympathetic nervous system to a frightening event. One of the key things that you need to make sure that you do on any trauma patient is to obtain three sets of vital signs a minimum of five minutes apart. This will help to differentiate between the patient that is in compensated shock and that patient that is simply experiencing a sympathetic response. In compensated shock, the patient's autonomic nervous system kicks into fight-or-flight mode and begins to cause vasoconstriction as well as an increase in the heart rate. This is done immediately following the onset of shock and helps to maintain the blood pressure so that perfusion is maintained throughout all the organ systems. During this stage, your patient's blood pressure may be normal or slightly elevated, Heart rate will be elevated, as will the respiratory rate. The danger here is that when you assess your patient, you'll quite often get a normal blood pressure. It's imperative for you to remember that lowered blood pressure is one of the later signs of the patient in shock. So a normal blood pressure may be a good thing, or it may be just a transitory thing as your patient passes from compensated into decompensated shock. If compensated shock is not addressed, the patient may proceed into decompensated shock. In this stage, the patient is still able to maintain some perfusion via an increasing heart rate and respiratory rate, but the blood pressure is now beginning to decline. Again, this is a dangerous phase to be complacent. Remember, in compensated shock, your patient's blood pressure may even be slightly elevated. Simply waiting to take a second blood pressure that falls into a normal range could lead you to think that the patient is stabilizing when they may not be. In addition, other signs and symptoms that you may see with this patient will be the onset of diaphoresis, pallor, as well as the beginnings of an altered mental status. The final stage of shock is irreversible shock. All body systems are now failing. Your patient's heart rate, respiratory rate, as well as their blood pressure are now falling. The very low percentage of patients who are able to be resuscitated from this phase is almost zero. In addition, it's imperative that you remember that geriatrics as well as pediatrics will move from compensated shock into irreversible shock much quicker than will other patient populations. In the pediatric patient, this is because their compensatory mechanisms have not yet fully developed. In the geriatric patient, the reverse is true. 
their compensatory mechanisms are pretty much just worn out and unable to react. Let's take a look at how the body responds to bleeding and hemorrhage as a pathophysiological perspective. It's primarily a three-step process, with the first one being the vein or artery sustains damage, and the tunica media, the muscular center part of the vessel, now begins to contract. This reduces the diameter of the vessel and will also withdraw it, leading it to having less area to allow bleeding. This is known as the vascular phase of hemostasis. Shortly thereafter, the lining of the vessel is roughened up, causing red blood cells now to tumble rather than pass smoothly through the vessel wall. This turbulent blood flow causes platelets now to become sticky and begin to attach to each other. At the same time, small protein fibers now begin to wrap around the platelet clot, much like a net to hold it together. This is known as the platelet phase of hemostasis. This happens rapidly, but in the early phases of the clot development, it's very unstable and may not stop the hemorrhage. The last step of hemostasis is known as the coagulation phase. There's a number of chemicals that are released known as clotting factors. These enter the blood and travel to the site of the injury. In addition to the small fibrous net that was formed in the second phase of hemostasis, larger fibers now begin to form around the clot. This helps the clot to become much more stable. The proteins used in both of these phases is known as fibrin. Generally, stopping of the bleeding will take approximately 8 minutes or so, depending upon several things. These include the severity of the wound, and whether it's an artery or a vein, the age of the patient, as well as the absence of any clotting factors, such as what we see in patients that are hemophiliacs. Regardless of the cause or the type of shock present, there are a number of pathophysiological actions that will take place that can lead to the demise of your patient. Capillaries will begin to shut down, resulting in the lack of perfusion to the cells as well as a reduction in cardiac preload. If this is left unchanged, anaerobic metabolism begins to occur, resulting in an increase in lactic acid with the occurrence of metabolic acidosis. Precapillary sphincters will cause them to become engorged with blood, leading to the clumping of red blood cells. A condition known as disseminated intravascular coagulation, or DIC, occurs in which remote blood clots throughout the body begin to develop. Because this condition uses up the body's clotting factors, your patient may begin to hemorrhage in other parts of the body. Pulmonary edema, respiratory failure, and acute respiratory distress syndrome begin to develop. At this point, your patient is in an irreversible shock. The kidneys and liver begin to fail, and death follows shortly thereafter. Movement of your patient can have a negative impact on the formation of clots within the body. This is why we want to minimize patients that, movement of patients that are traumatized, and we want to splint fractures as soon as it is possibly feasible. Being aggressive with the administration of IV fluids can cause you more problems than what there would be as far as their benefit. If you give a large volume of IV solution, most commonly given are crystalloids, the patient's blood pressure will begin to increase. This leads to an increased pressure on the clot as well as the increase in the rate of bleeding. Keep in mind that when you give a massive amount of IV solution, clotting factors that are necessary for the bleeding to stop are then diluted and the platelets become less effective. IV fluids do not carry oxygen and a large amount of fluid reduces the ability of the hemoglobin within the red blood cell 
to facilitate the movement of those oxygen cells. Your goal should be as far as fluid resuscitation is to maintain a blood pressure of somewhere between 90 and 100 millimeters of mercury systolic. The maintaining of your patient's body temperature is imperative towards the formation and stability of clotting during trauma. Your patient is hypothermic. Clotting factors don't work nearly as well, leading to ineffective hemostasis. Make sure your patient is warm by the time they get to the hospital. In conclusion, hemorrhage is a significant threat to the well-being of your patient. With the increase of shootings, particularly those in a mass setting, it's important for you as a paramedic to be able to understand what is happening at the cellular level so that you're able to come up with a workable care plan when everything you're doing is not effective. Keep in mind the signs and symptoms of shock can be mistaken for simply a patient who is excited after a traumatic event. Don't get caught blindsided. Rapid assessment and necessary treatment on the scene with quick transport to an appropriate trauma facility that has surgical capabilities is the best chance for survival of your patient.